Scripture reading this morning is going to be Colossians chapter 1, 9 through 14. Our focus will actually be on verses 12 through 14. I'm going to be reading 9 through 14 for the sake of context. And if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find Colossians chapter 1 on page 983. Last Sunday, in verses 3 through 12, our focus was on the goal of redemption. We saw that we have been redeemed to walk in the footsteps of faith and love. This morning, despite what your outline says, uh, our, our, goal, our focus is going to be on the nature of redemption. We're going to be asking, what is it that has been done for us? How have we been Redeemed. And so let us pray and ask God for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father in heaven, according to your great mercy and steadfast love, cause your word of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to bear fruit and grow among us, as indeed it does in the whole world. Father, may your word dwell in our hearts richly. This we ask in Jesus' name, and for his name's sake. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. This is the very word of God. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That is the reading of God's Word. As I said last Sunday, our goal, or our focus, was on the goal of redemption. We saw that we have been redeemed in Christ to walk in a new life, to, to walk in the footsteps of faith and love, to, to bear fruit and grow in every good work in the knowledge of God. And it is with that goal in view that Paul makes this prayer, praying for the Colossians, asking that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But notice that he adds this third petition in verse 11. In addition to knowledge and wisdom, Paul also asks that God would strengthen the Colossians with all of his power according to his glorious might. He adds this third petition, this, this petition for strength, because he knows that walking in the footsteps of faith and love, bearing fruit in every good work in the knowledge of God, he, he knows that this is something that requires great patience and endurance. This tells us something important about the Christian life. It, it tells us that, that the Christian life is not easy. 
following Jesus is not easy. It it is not easy to, to walk in the footsteps of faith and love. But on the contrary, it takes great strength. It it takes great endurance, great patience, because it is hard for people like us, people who have been polluted and bent out of shape by sin. It is hard for people like us living in a world like this that constantly buffets us with the lies of of Satan, telling us that our life is to be found somewhere else. It is hard for people like us living in a world like this, to walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord, worthy of His name. And there's encouragement in that. There's encouragement for those of us who struggle. There's encouragement for those who who find the Christian life hard. The encouragement is that, that Paul expects it to be hard. It's why he prays for strength. But I want you to notice something else. It's hard, yes, but but Paul doesn't think that the Christian life is is unmitigated misery. He doesn't think that it is simply something to be endured with a stiff upper lip. Yes, it is hard. Yes, it requires great patience and and great endurance. But, But look at the last phrase of verse 11. Paul's prayer is that we would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for endurance and patience, but for endurance and patience with joy. Paul thinks that the Christian's endurance, the the Christian's patience, is to be marked by joy. In fact, I think we can say it more strongly than this. Paul is telling us that the Christian's endurance must be marked by joy. It's not merely that we ought to be joyful as we walk in the footsteps of faith and love, but rather, we simply cannot endure in the Christian walk without joy. Joy is the fuel of the Christian's endurance. And I think we know this. One of the questions that we struggle with is is how. How do we find the motivation to do the things that we know we ought to do? As I said last Sunday in our study of verses 9 through 12, we we saw that God gives us knowledge, wisdom, and strength. He, He gives us these things that we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. And so in Christ, we know what we are supposed to do. And in Christ, we have the strength to do what we are supposed to do. But nevertheless, too often we fail to do what we are supposed to do. Despite having knowledge, despite having wisdom, despite having strength, we we fail. Why? I would suggest to you that we fail because we lack motivation. We lack a a compelling desire to do what we ought to do. Yes, we we desire in a sense, but but our desire is a sense of duty. Tim Chester says it this way, One of our problems is that we think of holiness as giving up things we enjoy out of a vague sense of obligation. 
We want to walk in faith and love because we think we ought to walk in faith and love. And, and we want to be the kind of people who do what we're supposed to do. We, we want to be dutiful. We want to be people who, who fulfill our obligations. But besides this sense of duty or obligation, we often don't feel a compelling motive. But on the contrary, too often we, we continue to, to think of our sins as desirable. We feel bad for desiring them. We, we wish we didn't desire them. But at the end of the day, we too often prefer our sins to good works and the knowledge of God. And so we struggle. And we often fail. So where are we going to find that compelling motivation? Where are we going to, to find the, the compelling motivation we need to endure in the Christian life? I want to suggest to you that we will find our compelling motivation when we begin to hear the call to walk in faith and love as good news. When we begin to believe that God's call to, to new obedience is in fact a call to the good life, to the best life, to, to the life of eternal satisfaction for which we were created, that life to which we have been saved. We will find our compelling motivation when we become to understand that bearing fruit in every good work is in fact a foretaste of heaven. Because until we do, so long as we continue to see our sin as desirable, so long as we continue to see good works as burdensome, we will make but little progress in the Christian life. It's been my experience. And I'm sure that it has been yours as well. And so the question is, how do we find the joy without which we cannot endure in the footsteps of faith and love? Where do we find the joy that will motivate us to bear fruit in every good work in the knowledge of God? I believe this is precisely the question that Paul is answering in verses 12 through 14. And he tells us that we will have endurance and patience with joy as we give thanks. It is as we give thanks, it's as we remember the things that God has done for us that we will have the joy to endure in the life that we have been called to live. And so here Paul actually mentions three things in particular for which we ought to give thanks. First, he says, we ought to give thanks to the Father because He has qualified us for an inheritance. Second, we ought, to give we ought to give thanks to the Father because He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness. And third, we ought to give thanks to the Father because He has redeemed us from the debt of our sin. We have been qualified. We have been delivered. And we have been redeemed. I want us to look at each of these in, in more detail because it's in these truths that we will find the joy that is the fuel for the Christian life. Let's begin with the first. We have been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. 
But to understand what, what Paul is getting at, we, we have to understand what this inheritance is. What is the ins- inheritance of the saints in light? And in fact, we have to understand who are these saints that are inheriting. So who are the saints? I think when we, when we hear that word today, we often tend to think of the, the religious or the moral elite, those who, who have excelled in the Christian life. But that's not actually the way that Paul uses the word. Rather, saints is one of the words that that Paul chooses to use regularly to describe ordinary Christians, to describe all Christians. The word saints means holy one, and to be holy is to be set apart for the Lord. And so the holy ones are the ones who belong to God, the ones who have been devoted to, to His Service And that's not some Christians, that is all Christians. All believers are, are called upon to, do, to offer themselves as living sacrifices to God. All Christians are, are not their own, but have been bought with the price. All Christians have been ransomed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. All Christians belong to the Lord and therefore are His chosen people. And as His chosen people, they are saints. But why does Paul describe them here as, as saints in the light? We must understand that that Paul is not trying to distinguish two kinds of saints. It's not that there are some saints in the light and and some saints in the dark, but rather he is is reminding us that to be a saint is to be in the light. They are the saints in the light because saints dwell in the light. But what is this light that Paul is talking about? It is the light of God's presence. Remember Aaron's blessing, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, the, the blessing with which Paul began this letter when he, when he gave a blessing of grace and peace to the Colossians. That blessing says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace. Paul is reminding his readers that the saints, those who have been set apart for the Lord, those who are His people, they abide in the place of God's blessing. They, they, they abide with, with His face of blessing upon them. Saints are people who live in the blessing of God. And it is that blessing which, which helps us to understand the inheritance that Paul is talking about. The the language of inheritance brings to mind the promised land. A land said to be flowing with milk and honey. A land of abundant provision and protection. The very things promised in Aaron's blessing. The inheritance was the place where they would dwell with God and God would dwell with them. where, Where they would be God's people and He would be their God. That land was often referred to as Israel's inheritance. But we must understand that that land was merely a shadow of the full inheritance that God had in store for His people. We we see this, for example, in Hebrews 11, where we are told that the land pointed forward to something else. The land pointed forward to a better country to a heavenly one. Not a country in heaven, but a heavenly country, a country on earth, where the Lord's prayer would be fulfilled, where where God's will would be done here as in 
heaven, uh, uh, the country that we see come down to earth at the end of, of Revelation, the new city, the country re referred to as the kingdom of God. The inheritance of the saints in light is that kingdom. It is there that they will dwell. It is there that they will live eternally as the people of God, fulfilling the mission of God. It is the kingdom which dawned when, when Jesus was born and, and lived and died and rose again. And the kingdom that will be brought to full fruition when He returns to bring to completion the good work that He has begun. This is the inheritance of the saints in light. It is that promised Emmanuel's land. But what does it mean to say that the Colossians have been qualified for a share in this inheritance? Again, we, we must understand that Paul is not using the word qualified the way that we often use it today. We, we talk about someone being qualified for a loan or being qualified for a position at a company. When we use that language, we mean that the person has been examined or the, the person has been interviewed and they have been found to fulfill the requirements. But that's not at all what Paul is talking about. It doesn't mean that we've been pre-qualified for heaven. But rather, Paul means that the Father has caused us to become qualified. We know this from the way that Paul uses the same word in his second letter to the Corinthians. There, Paul asks this question. He says, who is sufficient to be a minister of the gospel? Who is, who is sufficient to proclaim that word that is the aroma of death to those who are perishing, but is the aroma of life to those who are being saved? Who is, who is sufficient for such a calling? That word sufficient is the same word that Paul uses here. It's the same word here translated as qualified. And in the context, it is clear that Paul knows himself to be decidedly unqualified. And in fact, it's, it's clear that he regards no man as qualified for such a work. But he goes on to say that God has qualified him. It gets translated as made him competent or, or made him sufficient, but it's the same word. God has qualified him for the work that he has been called to do. God took someone who in and of himself was unqualified and caused him to become qualified. And that's exactly the same word, way that Paul is using the word here. He isn't saying that, that God has found the Colossians to be qualified, but rather that he has caused them to become qualified. The Father has taken steps to qualify the Colossians for a share in the inheritance of the saints in life. And of course, this is true not only for the Colossians, but for all saints. It's not just the, the, the Colossians who are unqualified, but all of us are unqualified. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God, through His grace and mercy, has caused us to be qualified for a share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And to understand the full significance of this, just turn the page over to, to Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, verse, beginning at verse 16, we read this. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. 
These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, or going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. What is Paul talking about? He's, he's addressing the false teachers who had come into the church at Colossae. And he, he is saying there are, there are teachers among you, teachers who are, who are telling you that faith in Jesus is not enough. There are false teachers among you who are, who are telling you that in order to qualify for an inheritance in the coming kingdom, a person must follow certain religious practices. He, he must eat or, or not eat the, the right food. He must drink or not drink the right cup. He must submit to the right calendar of, of feasts and festivals. Others were suggesting that a, that a person must give up all physical pleasure and become an ascetic. Still others were, were suggesting that a, that a person must honor the right intermediators, the, the, the angels who can truly bring us to God. And still others were suggesting that a person must have some sort of vision or, or mystical experience. There's a whole cohort of, of false teachers who, who each have their own suggestion about what we must add to the work of Christ if we would qualify for an inheritance in the coming kingdom. And as the, these false teachers buffet them with their man-made wisdom, the, the Colossians, who have been brought to faith by Epaphras, are beginning to doubt. They are, they are beginning to wonder. They, they are beginning to wonder if this gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is, is really true. Is Jesus really enough? They are beginning to wonder if there's something else they must do to secure their inheritance. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? We may not have the same sorts of false teachings, but we have plenty of false teachers. We have plenty of people who tell us what we must do in order to secure our inheritance, what we must add to the work of Christ. And we begin to doubt, we begin to, to wonder if our inheritance is really secure. It is that doubt precisely that Paul is addressing when he says, do not let any false teacher disqualify you. Do not let them teach you that you are disqualified until you do this or, or that. You have been qualified by the Father himself, Paul says. And if the Father has qualified you, who is it that could possibly disqualify you? In Christ, your eternal life is perfectly and unassailably secure. At your justification, when you were pronounced righteous in God's sight, that was the final verdict being announced beforehand in the present. That final verdict is not up for debate. It is not in doubt. You have been qualified by the Father through Christ for an inheritance in the coming kingdom of God. That's what Peter says in his first letter. He, he says not only is that inheritance being kept for us, such that moth and rust cannot touch it, such that thieves cannot break in and steal it. Not only is the inheritance secure, but we are being kept for it. We are being guarded by the very power of God through faith and through faith alone. 
It is the Father who has qualified you. And therefore, your qualification is unassailable. You have full assurance. And it is this assurance, this, this assured inheritance that Paul says is the first pillar of our joy. It is this assurance that strengthens us to endure in the footsteps of faith and love. But it is not the only pillar. There's, there's a second pillar that Paul mentions here. The, the second pillar of our joy is found in verse 13. Notice what Paul says. He says, He, again, referring to the Father, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So not only have we been qualified for an inheritance that we will receive one day in the future, but now, in the present, we have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of Christ. This is our present benefit. This is what has, has been done. So again, two questions immediately come to mind. First, we, we ask, what is it that we have been delivered from? What is it to, to be in the dominion of darkness? And of course, secondly, what is it that we have been delivered to? What is it to be in the kingdom of the Son? So, so first, what is it to be in the dominion of darkness? As we try to understand that imagery, the, the best phrase I can, I can give you is that it is voluntary slavery. I think of Wormtail in the, the Harry Potter series, Serving Voldemort, or, or the German scientist who, who serves Red Skull in the first Captain America movie, or, or the, the accountant that you've seen in any number of police shows who, who, who gets in with organized crime. He has volunteered for the service because he thought that this dark master could somehow give him the desires of his heart. But in short order, he's discovered that all of his new master's promises were but lies. And the only wages he will ever truly receive are death. But unfortunately now, he's trapped. This is exactly how Paul speaks of our relationship with the domain of darkness. We have freely presented ourselves to sin as obedient slaves in the hope of gaining some desired good. But the only fruit that we actually receive from our service, the only wages that we are ever actually paid, are death. But despite the double cross, despite the fact that our Master has reneged on His promises, we now have no hope of escape. Like the hap hapless servants of dark lords in the movies, because we have given ourselves to darkness, we are no longer free to return to the light. For in the light would we, we would be exposed and undone, like Isaiah being brought into the presence of the one who is a consuming fire. In the light, we would come under God's holy wrath. And therefore, we're stuck. We are voluntary Slaves. Our only choice is to remain in the darkness, trying harder and harder to get what we want, but in fact, merely digging our hole deeper and deeper. This is, I think, what Paul means when he says that the power of sin is the law. 
It's a strange statement when you think about it. How, how could the power of sin, how, how could God's good law be, be the power of sin? But as you reflect on it further, I think you begin to realize that, that once we have given ourselves to sin, we cannot return to God because the law won't let us. Because now, as sinners under the law, there is nothing but wrath for us in the presence of, of God. We have, we have cut ourselves off from his blessed presence. And thus, even though sin has not delivered on any of its promises, even though the only thing we have gotten for ourselves is shame and misery, we are slaves. We have no way out. We have no way back to the Father. Sin has used the good law to trap us in the dark. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, we were without God and without hope in this world. That's what it means to be in the dominion of darkness. And that was our condition because that is the condition of every man apart from Christ. We are all the, the hapless accountant who has partnered with organized crime because he thought it was going to give him a better life but who has discovered himself to be a slave, trapped in a hell he never could imagine, with no hope of escape. That's what it is to be in the dominion of darkness. That's what it is to be a voluntary slave of a dark Lord. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, he did not leave us to perish in the shame and misery of our sins. But rather, as Paul says here, he delivered us from the dominion of darkness and he brought us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. That brings us back to our second question. What does that mean? We, we've seen what it means to be in the dominion of darkness. What does it mean to be in the kingdom of Christ? And again, I think Aaron's blessing helps us answer this question. The, the language of, of grace and peace helps us to understand what it is to be in the kingdom of Christ. For the kingdom of the Son is a kingdom of grace and peace. It is a kingdom of, of blessing and keeping, a, a kingdom of provision and protection. Again, think of Isaiah's description that we hear so often this time of year. He says, for to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of the child born in Bethlehem. This is the kingdom into which we have been brought. The kingdom in which we now presently, not just one day, but now presently dwell. We presently possess the promise of abundant provision and perfect protection. Well, these promises have often been misinterpreted and thus have been grossly distorted by those who, who teach a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. 
But we must not so overreact to that false teaching that we miss the reality of what is actually ours now in Christ. We now dwell in the kingdom of the beloved Son. And that means we have abundant provision. It does not mean that we will be granted every desire of our heart, but rather it means that everything we need to glorify and enjoy God now, here in the present, everything we need to to glorify and enjoy Him is and will be ours. In Christ, you will never lack any necessary provision. Now to some, that sounds like a bait and switch. Sounds like I'm, I'm promising one thing, but, but, but really only something far less is going to be delivered. But it's actually exactly the opposite. If all that was promised was health, wealth, and prosperity here and now, that would be the lesser promise. Because in truth, the treasures and pleasures of this life, they do not satisfy. Yes, they they can be enjoyed by a satisfied person. They can be delighted in, and we we give thanks for them, but they will never fill the person who is empty. They will never warm the soul that is cold. Money simply does not buy happiness. Even the world knows this. But on the contrary, our joy is rooted in God's glory. We find our satisfaction in doing His work will. And therefore, the promise of provision to do the work to which we have been called is the far better promise. For it means that we will never lack the resources we need to know full and perfect delight in the will of our Father as we follow the Son and the power of the Spirit. And the same can be said about the protection that we enjoy here and now in this life as we dwell in Christ's kingdom. It doesn't mean that we will never face or or experience suffering or, or hardship, but rather it means that no real harm can befall us. There is no power in all creation that can thwart God's purpose of blessing for His people. Here again, the familiar words of of Romans chapter 8. Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For there is nothing in all creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Will tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness come? Yes, they will. But they cannot harm us. They cannot thwart God's purpose of blessing. They cannot separate us from God's love for us in Christ. And that's what it means to be in the kingdom of the Son, where we are now, because God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and brought us presently into the kingdom of His beloved Son. This is your present blessing. And this blessing is the second pillar of your joy. Not only do you have an assured inheritance, but you dwell now in the kingdom of the Son. 
where you are under the blessing of God, knowing His abundant provision and perfect protection. But there's a third pillar that Paul mentions here, and that is redemption. Mentioning the beloved Son, he says, in Him, in Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, redemption is, a, is an economic term. It's, it's, a, it's a term that, that means to buy something back. But in Paul's day, the, the, the language of redemption inevitably would bring to mind the specter of debt slavery. You see, in the ancient world, there was no social safety net. A, a person who accrued debts he could not pay, which was a common occurrence. In Paul's day, if a farmer had a few bad harvests in a row, or if a, if a farmer's flock or herd was decimated by disease or, or drought, he could easily find himself with debts that he, he simply could not pay. And if that happened, the person with debts would have to sell himself into slavery. He would have to become the slave of the one to whom he owned the money, and he would have to work for that person as a slave until his debts were paid off. And it's in that context that we must understand this language of redemption because redemption was when a family member would come alongside this person who, who had accrued debts that he could not pay, and he would come alongside him and he would purchase his freedom by paying off the debts. That was redemption. When debts were paid so that a person's freedom could be restored, that person was redeemed. And the person who paid the debts was the kinsman redeemer. And by saying that we have redemption in Christ, Paul is saying that Christ has purchased our freedom by paying off our debt. And he makes it clear the debt that he has in mind. The, the debt that he has in mind is the debt of our sins. Christ has paid the debt of our sins. He has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This explains how we have been brought into God's kingdom. How is it that we, we as sinners, condemned by the law, can dwell in the presence of God without being destroyed or, or undone? We can now dwell in the presence of God. Because our debt has been paid by our kinsman redeemer. But how has Christ done this? How has, has Christ paid our debt? Paul doesn't tell us explicitly here, but in chapter 2, he tells us that the debt was nailed to the cross. In Ephesians, he says that we have redemption through his blood. And Peter says the same thing, telling us that we have been ransomed. And, and ransom was, was simply the word for the redemption price. We have been ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. For he is the one who came to lay down his life as the ransom for many. This then is the third pillar of our joy. The debt which separated us from God and brought us under His wrath, has been paid in full. It will never be charged against us. In Christ, we will never be treated as our sins deserve. 
Not so that we can go on sinning with impunity, but so that we could be brought back into the joy of Christ's kingdom. So that we could be once for all set free from the futility of of shame and misery and the dominion of darkness. And so that we could be brought into a life of faith and love one day to be brought to fruition in the coming kingdom of God. This is the joy that sets us free to walk in the footsteps of faith and love here and now. It is this joy that sets us free to endure in the bearing of good fruits in the knowledge of God. You see, when we present our bodies to sin as obedient slaves, we are walking in a lie. We are walking in the dark. We are believing that sin offers us something good that God has maliciously withheld. But Paul would remind us of the truth. And he would call us to walk in the truth. He would would call us to walk in the light, remembering that the Father so loved us that He sent His Son to give His life as a ransom price for our redemption so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be brought into the kingdom of life, and so that we would one day receive an inheritance in the coming kingdom of God. And because the Father has done all this for us in Christ, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? And let us believe it together. Father God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace to us in Christ. We thank you for all that you have done for us through him. That through him our debt has been canceled. That that through him we have been set free from slavery and brought into the kingdom of the beloved son. That, That through him we now are assured a share in the coming inheritance of the kingdom of God. Father God, I pray that you would open our eyes to these truths and that you would allow them to dwell in our hearts richly, that you would allow them to renew our minds and transform our lives, that we might indeed bear fruit in every good work in the knowledge of God, both now and forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.